BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Knee-deep in snow, by the banks of the Lozva River, Boris Slobsov pulled the hood up over his head and tied the flaps of his hat down tightly below his chin. It was all he could do to stop the incessant pelting of his face by the flecks of snow being whipped up relentlessly by the wind. In the distance, he can hear the repetitive dull chop of helicopter blades. The sound gets closer and closer until eventually the olive-green MI4 finally comes into view. Squinting now into the sun, he watches as it makes a slow lumbering turn across the sky before settling over the Lozva and forging a path straight towards him. And then, just as it's about to fly above his head, it makes a sharp bank to the right. Boris is close enough to see the co-pilot wave before throwing something out of the cockpit. Boris watches as the object drops from the sky, its red ribbon flapping manically as it falls, before nestling in the snow metres away from Boris's feet. He hurries over and pulls the canister free, unscrewing the cap to find a message for his team lodged inside. It tells them to head towards the Ausbia River, roughly three kilometres to the south. It is Wednesday, February the 25th, exactly four weeks since Yuri Yudin was forced to abandon Igor Dyatlov and the eight other friends he had been accompanying as part of an expedition towards Otorton Mountain in the Russian Urals. It had been a painful decision for Yuri, but one perhaps not quite as painful as the crippling effects of rheumatism 
that had plagued him throughout the journey and in the end left him with little choice but to turn back. Yuri had last been with the group in the North Two settlement, an old abandoned geological site from which they were due to strike out towards Otorton Mountain a short time after they had said their goodbyes. The team had been expected to arrive back in their hometown of Sverdlovsk on February the 13th, almost two weeks ago, but the team had never returned. 22-year-old Boris Slobsov is a friend of Igor's and a member of the same hiking club. He too had planned to one day make the hike to Otorton Mountain, but never could he have imagined it would be under circumstances such as these. Boris had been one of the first to volunteer to help find the team after concerns had been voiced about their whereabouts. The alarm had been raised by anxious parents on the 13th, but it would be almost another week before hiking club officials deem it a serious concern worthy of a formal search and rescue operation. It was after all not uncommon for such lengthy hikes to suffer the odd one or two days delay. But when, a whole week later, there is still no word from the team, it is clear that something has gone drastically wrong. The Ural Polytechnic's first response is to dispatch hiking club director Lev Gordo and young Yuri Blinov, who had travelled part way with the Dyatlov team prior to their disappearance, to undertake a quick air surveillance of the team's probable route. Meanwhile, in Evedale, the town closest to where the team was last seen, a criminal investigation is opened up, led by local prosecutor Vasily Tempelov. A three-pronged attack is established when experienced hiker Yevgeny Maslenikov is also enlisted to help run things on the ground. Yevgeny, who was well aware of Igor and his compatriots, having initially helped them to plan their route, wastes little time in joining the search. On the 24th, Tempelov agrees to open up the search to include all possible routes taken by Dyatlov's team, and by now, With news of the team's disappearance spreading throughout the region, many volunteers have come forward to offer their help, including members of the family, fellow students and workers from the local camps. The search is given an early boost when Gordo and Blinov pick up a trail that leads them to a Mansi village called Bartiarova. The Mansi are an indigenous people of western Siberia, an area running roughly 1,500 kilometres from the Ural Mountains to the Great Yenisei River in the east. This vast stretch of land is sometimes referred to as Ugra land, but is now commonly known as the Kanti Mansiysk Autonomous District. It is believed that Mansi have populated the region since the Mesolithic Age, sharing ancestors with both the people of Hungary and Finland. They are historically known for their proficiency in hunting, fishing and reindeer breeding. But they are also a superstitious people, steeped in a rich culture and folklore unique to themselves, but also to this region. Although some have claimed an ancient lineage that goes back to the Sumerians, 
who many consider to be the first great civilization. To look upon the Ural Mountains through the eyes of the Mansi is to see another world hidden from the view of most. It is a sacred place, home to spirits and gods and many an unsolved ancient mystery. Although for Gordo and Blinov, the trail goes cold in Bartiarova, their efforts have caught the attention of several Mansi tribesmen, who like everybody else are deeply moved by the plight of the missing students. The offer to lend their unparalleled local knowledge and tracking skills to the search is gratefully accepted. The Mansi team is led by Stepan Kurikov, a warm-hearted and hulking presence as well as being one of the most respected of the tribal elders. A few days later, the helicopter search team picks up ski tracks, heading north from the Auspia River at the bottom of a mountain known as Kolat Siekel. But searchers on the ground are unable to establish any clear route before bad weather brings the day's search to an end. It is the following day when Boris Slobsov and his team received their message to search the corresponding area. Later that afternoon, a breakthrough discovery is made when Boris locates one of the Dyatlov team's campsites on the banks of the river, just to the edge of a forest. It is clear that Dyatlov's team would most likely have struck out from here and headed straight towards Otorton Mountain, over the exposed banks of Kolat Siakl. But with night fast approaching, and the weather becoming increasingly volatile, Slobsov's team are unable to follow suit and are forced to retreat into the tree line and make camp for the night. That evening, as the dark closed in around them, with yet another day gone, Slobsov can't help but think upon the fate of his friends and to just what exactly might be lying in wait, buried under the snow. It hasn't escaped his attention either, that the name Collet Siakl translates as Dead Mountain. The next day, February the 26th, Slobsov suggests that the team break into pairs to widen the search area. Boris joins up with fellow hiking team member Mikhail Sharavin, and together they head off in the direction of Otorton, across the eastern slope of Kolat Siakl. That afternoon, as the two hikers battle raging winds and minus 20 degree temperatures, the hikers are 300 metres from the top of the mountain when Mikhail spots something up ahead sticking out of the snow. It looks like a tent. Getting nearer, the thing starts to reveal itself. They can now clearly see the poles sticking out from underneath and the south-facing entrance that remains intact while the entire back half has collapsed under the weight of snowfall. Boris calls out hopefully for his friends, but hears nothing in reply, save for the fierce whistling of the wind. He steps toward the entrance, takes a deep breath, and pulls back the flap. It is with an odd mix of relief and disappointment that Boris finds the tent completely deserted. The relief being tempered by the fact that almost everything that the hikers had been travelling with 
appeared to have been left behind inside, as if the team had just vanished into thin air. But for Boris, their absence provides a glimmer of hope that his friends might actually still be alive. Pushing back on the heavy canvas, Boris and Mikhail managed to write the tent enough to take a proper look inside. On the floor, they find the nine backpacks belonging to each team member, as well as each of their skis. Perhaps most curiously, they find a jacket left on the ground outside the tent. Boris pulls it from the snow and scours the surrounding area, hoping to spot footprints or any other sign of his friends, but sees only the vast white emptiness. And with dark clouds beginning to roll in, Boris and Mikhail only have a few minutes to gather what they can before reluctantly being forced back to their camp. On their return, Boris is able to send word back to Evedale, suggesting all search efforts be concentrated on the surrounding area. A reply comes back to dig out a helicopter landing site in preparation for over 50 people who will be arriving the next day. It is another anxious night for Boris and his team, and their attention is constantly drawn to the items brought back from the abandoned tent. The presence of the items in Boris's tent seems only to bring the absence of their owners closer, as if they had merely stepped outside for a moment before returning to collect their things. Boris picks up the jacket and examines the pockets, hoping for any clue as to the team's whereabouts. Inside, he discovers a notebook, suggesting the jacket was Igor Dyatlov's. Flicking through the pages, Boris discovers a photograph. It is a portrait of Zina. The following day, Friday the 27th, the search teams converge on the newly discovered campsite, including police equipped with search dogs. The ensuing chaos threatens to undermine any hope of finding tracks under the snow, but remarkably, one of the team finds some, 20 metres or so from the tent, under a patch of freshly fallen snow. They see them clearly now, veering off down the side of the hill towards the Lozva River Valley. But there is something very odd. Some of the prints seem bizarrely small, almost as if whoever had made them had not been wearing any shoes. And there is another vital discovery. A team diary kept by all the members of the group to document their expedition. The entries had been meticulously kept since the first day, but had ended abruptly on January the 31st, suggesting whatever happened likely occurred around February the 1st, meaning the group has now been missing for four weeks. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, 
so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc Therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Slobsov's team, who are that morning searching the banks of the Lozva River, are informed of the tracks found leading towards their location. Boris plays out the scenario in his head until he is transported back to the night the team left the tent. He sees them now, their movements echoing through time as they descend down the mountain and head for the shelter of the same trees that he is walking among. A short time later, and Mikhail finds something strange at the base of a cedar tree. Poking through the snow, he finds the charred remains of a makeshift fire that had clearly been hastily put together. He notices also that a number of the tree's branches have been recently snapped off. And then, just north of the tree, there is something else sticking out of the snow. Something once soft, but now as rigid and hard as the cedar. It is a human leg. For Boris and his team, it is a devastating discovery and one that will extinguish any remaining hope of finding his friends alive. But for us, it merely marks another beginning to this strange and bizarre tale, for it is about to get very weird indeed. After Mikhail's gruesome discovery, Boris alerts Maslenikov's team, and together they carefully begin to excavate the body from the snow. But as they dig further, they discover not one body, but two, lying side by side together, with one face down and the other face up. As the last of the snow is pushed from one of the faces, Boris recoils in horror. The mouth, nose and eyes appear to have been completely removed. Despite the apparent mutilation, Boris recognises the face instantly as Georgi Krivonyshenko. The other body is soon revealed to be that of Yuri Doroshenko. But it's not until the full horror of the discovery has sunk in that they notice something peculiar about the clothes on the bodies, or rather, the lack of them. Georgi appears not to be wearing a jacket or trousers, just one checkered shirt and some swimming trunks under long underwear. Even more bizarrely, the left leg of the underwear has been ripped off and his feet are completely bare. Doroshenko appears somewhat better dressed, with an undershirt, check top, long underwear and socks, but no shoes. His clothes also appear to have been bizarrely shredded. After the discovery of the bodies, the focus of the search switches quickly to the valley. Mansi elder Stepan Kurikov leads the search, along with his German shepherd Snifferdog. Another experienced hiker, Vladislav Karelin, has also joined the search. Vladislav was a medical engineer who had crossed paths with Dyatlov's team as they made their way towards Otorten. Having located the first two bodies, it isn't long before the German shepherd picks up another ominous scent. Pulling hard on the leash, 
he drags his owner across to a spot where Stepan recognises something unnatural about the way the birch tree shoots are sticking out from the snow. The dog sniffs heavily at the spot and soon they have made another gruesome discovery as just below the surface they find an arm that appears still to be pulling in desperation at the shoots. This body is better dressed than the other two, complete with a sweater, fur vest and ski trousers. But again, extraordinarily, there are no gloves and no shoes. Vladislav Karelin recognises the face of Igor Dyatlov. Moments later, Evedale policeman Lieutenant Nikolai Moisiev and his dog Alma are heading back from the trees towards the team's tent when Alma gets suddenly anxious and begins to dig manically. It is yet another body, lying face down with their knees bent as if making a final desperate bid to crawl back to the safety of the tent. Moisiev turns the body over and is surprised to find dried blood smeared across the face. The body will later be identified as that of Zina Kolmogorova. Yevgeny Maslenikov, who by now has been made head of the entire ground search operation, orders the bodies to be wrapped in tarpaulin and taken to Boot Rock on the bank of Kolat Siakl, while they await evacuation and formal autopsy. Watching as the bodies are laid out at the base of the rock, Maslenikov can't help but begin to formulate his own theories about just what might have taken place. For Maslenikov, it appears a simple case of being caught out by the weather. Perhaps one of the team stepped out of the tent only to be swept away by the wind, prompting his friends to make a fatal rescue attempt. Or perhaps it was an avalanche that scared them from the safety of their tent and left them catastrophically disorientated. Only, if the wind or avalanche had been so strong as to push the hikers down the valley, why was the tent still clinging so firmly to the side of the mountain, its poles still standing as they would have been the day they were pitched? The day after the four bodies are discovered, prosecutor Vasily Tempelov finally arrives on the scene to make his own assessment of the evidence. He makes a note of the various items found at the campsite, but also he is the first person to notice something odd about the tent itself. It may have still been standing, but what no one had seemed to notice before was that one side of it had been completely and unnaturally slashed to pieces. But before Tempelov can get his teeth into the investigation, he is told to step down from the operation. On the morning of Sunday, March the 1st, yet another helicopter arrives at the search headquarters at the foot of Kolat Siakl. The door is opened and out steps the determined figure of Lev Ivanov, junior counsel of justice and now lead investigator on the case. He adjusts his glasses and pulls his jacket tighter before being led away from the chopper and straight into the fray. Moments later, he is casting his eyes over the makeshift fire at the base of the cedar tree. Suddenly, with Ivanov on the scene 
the investigation seems to have taken on another guise. Like something from a classic detective novel, there is more than the touch of the brooding enigmatic hero about Ivanov. His thick black-rimmed glasses lending a cerebral air to this intense veteran of the Great Patriotic War. Immediately, he makes note of a number of branches snapped from up high in the tree. Perhaps one of the team climbed the tree in an attempt to call the others, or maybe he had been trying to escape from something. He also notices another pair of footprints in the snow, suggesting that Georgi and Yuri weren't alone when they died. He begins to ponder as to just why they let the fire burn out, if there was plenty of firewood around to be used. Meanwhile, Maslenikov is overseeing a team of 30 men, lined up shoulder to shoulder, as they probe the ground with steel avalanche poles. That day, they cover a region of roughly 30,000 square yards, but the search yields nothing more. Later, Ivanov and Maslenikov will together analyse the abandoned tent, leaving Ivanov convinced more than ever that whatever killed Dyatlov's team members, it wasn't the wind and it wasn't heavy snowfall. On March the 2nd, one of the search teams comes across a storage shelter perched high up in the trees, laden with various supplies. It is a common practice for hiking teams to unburden themselves before venturing out on the most gruelling part of a journey. This appears to have been the case with Dyatlov's team. The search party are moved to find Georgi's mandolin amongst the items of food. It is a stark and sudden reminder of a time before. Later that day, after the news of the store camp is passed up the chain, something a little more peculiar comes to light when Maslenikov is approached by one of the searchers. It is Vladislav Karelin, the mountaineer who found Iga's body the previous week, and he has had something on his mind ever since. On the night of February the 17th, Karelin was hiking with his own team close to the trail that Dyatlov and his team had been taking, when they witnessed something strange in the sky. A member of his group, Georgi Atmanaki, had woken early to make breakfast when he noticed a large bright white spot in the distance above them. He points it out to his friend, Vladimir Shavkunov, believing it to be an especially bright moon. But Shavkunov was concerned. There was no moon that morning, and in any case, if there had been, it would have been on the other side of the sky. Then suddenly, a spark lit in the centre of the spot that seemed to burn brighter, getting bigger in size before flying off quickly to the west. The light would eventually get so big that they believed it was going to collide with the earth and kill them all. And they weren't the only ones to see it, as many local villagers would later come forward attesting to the bizarre sighting. Maslenikov agrees it is certainly something to think about, but as he reminds Karelin, Dyatlov's team most likely died around the turn of the month, a good two weeks prior to the appearance of the strange light. But when the news reaches Ivanov, he finds it a little harder to shake. Later that afternoon, as he watches the bodies of Iga, 
Yuri, Georgi, and Sina, being loaded into the helicopter. Talk of the strange lights and fire in the sky weighs heavily on his mind. It certainly wouldn't be the first time that something unknown had occurred in this nation, something perhaps carried out in secret and kept hidden from view. As he climbs in after the bodies, Maslenikov is there to see him off as the chopper lifts up into the air and flies away on its journey back to Evedale. The following day, with the search now starting to deliver results, Yuri Blinov, one of the last people to see his friends alive, and who had worked so tirelessly over the past seven days to help find them, decides it is time to return home. The bodies are taken to the hospital of Labour Camp H240 in Evedale and left to thaw out before the formal autopsy can begin. On March the 4th, the Regional Bureau Forensic Pathologist Boris Alexeyevich Vozrozhdenai and the City Medical Examiner Ivan Ivanovich Laptev begin the procedure. Both Yuri and Georgi display signs of burns to the side of their heads consistent perhaps with the fact that they had fallen so close to the makeshift fire. As for Georgi's missing features, they are deemed likely to have been eaten by ravenous animals post-mortem. The litany of abrasions and spots of dried blood found on all of the bodies suggest final moments of wild panic, but are not thought to be particularly suspicious. Given the location of where the bodies were found and the time of year, It is perhaps unsurprising when a verdict of death by hypothermia is returned on all four of the victims. And yet, looking closer at the autopsy report reveals a number of peculiar findings. Skin from one of Georgi's right knuckles is found in his mouth, suggesting he must have bitten it off himself, perhaps to force his hands to move, or as some have suggested, maybe to stifle a cry. Eager's body shows signs of vomiting blood, with Yuri's autopsy noting signs of fluid in the lungs, as well as bruises sustained by some kind of blunt trauma. And something found on Zena's back also catches the eye. A long, bright red bruise, the sort you might sustain, perhaps, after being clubbed by a heavy object. Meanwhile, in a room not far away, Yuri Yudin has been summoned by lead investigator Lev Ivanov. Incredibly, Yudin had been one of the last to learn of the rescue operation to find Dyatlov's team, having decided to recuperate in his hometown of Emilyashevka before returning to Sverdlovsk. And now he was being given the sombre task of sorting through all the team's personal belongings in order to assign them to their correct owner he too finds the picture of Zena in Iga's notebook and manages a wry smile when he finds a packet of cigarettes secretly stashed away in Alexander Kolovatov's bag. But back on Kolatsiakl, the search continues and on March 5th, another body is discovered. Karelin had been searching a region in between where Iga and Zena were found when he hit something solid just below the surface. Once the snow had been cleared, Karelin recognises the body as that of the much-loved 
Rustic Slobodin. Unlike the others, Rustic seems almost properly dressed, but something else immediately catches Karelin's attention. There is a severe discolouring on the front of his head, while a patch of ice close to his mouth suggests that he had been alive for some time after he fell. Rustic's injuries were confirmed by the pathologist in an autopsy three days later as being potentially consistent with damage sustained from a blunt object. The frontal bone of his skull is found to be fractured with severe haemorrhaging in the temple region as if he had repeatedly been forced down onto his face. Rustic's is the fifth body to be recovered, while four of Dyatlov's team remain missing. And the investigation has only just begun. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or on Twitter at unexplainedpod. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Head in store and shop for all your favorite personal care essentials to earn four times rewards points. Shop for products from Olay, Always, Gillette, Vicks, and Crest. Plus, check out new items like Mr. Clean Magic Eraser Ultra Thick Multi-Surface Cleaner. No more sponges or other cleaning products needed. And Head and Shoulders Bare Soothing Hydration Shampoo, a new kind of anti-dandruff shampoo with only nine ingredients. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details.